Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Active Dialogue 2014, a collaboration of the University of Nordland, the Heinold Center, and the Arctic Institute. We're speaking with attendees and speakers about the work, the Arctic Dialogue Conference, and the conference's theme of Arctic resources. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mark Jacobsen. Today we are talking with Klaus Dutz, a professor of geopolitics at Royal Holloway, University of London, and editor of the Geographical Journal. Klaus is the author and editor of many articles and books on the Arctic and Antarctic, including the co-edited volume entitled Polar Geopolitics, recently published by Edward Elger. Klaus, thanks for joining us today. No, thank you. Pleasure. Could I ask you to start by telling us about your current research as it relates to the Arctic and your plans for the near-term future? Well, as, as you said, Mark, I've recently uh, published with Richard Powell an edited book on polar geopolitics that uh, attempted to make, if you like, a theoretical intervention into how we might think of the Arctic and Antarctic in, I hope, uh, critical and uh, constructive ways, particularly when it comes to geopolitics, given that it's uh, been at times a deeply controversial field. But um, apart from that, probably the area that I'm becoming increasingly interested in is the role of observers as it relates to the Arctic Council. And I think for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, because I'm a citizen of a state that is uh, a fairly long-standing now uh, observer to the Arctic Council, which has just recently released an Arctic policy framework. But secondly, uh, as you know and listeners know only too well, uh, after the ministerial meeting in Kiruna uh, last year, we also witnessed the arrival, the admission of a series of new observers and perhaps more significantly, we also witnessed a number of other applicants either being delayed or simply not processed uh, because of lack of time. So it's that kind of area that I'm really interested in is what kind of role will both old and new observers play with regard to the Arctic Council? And how will the Arctic Council, uh, with all its complexity, react to this growing interest uh, in observation? So how do you think the Arctic Council will react to this growing interest? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I think what, uh, you know, what's really important is actually the process that emerged uh, in the critical period between 2008 and 2013. So I think what we saw was a whole series of initiatives and events, including the Ulusat Declaration, a, a number of ministerial meetings, legally binding agreements, and of course, critically, the, the so-called new criteria, which set out the kind of guidelines, uh, including obligations facing observers. So in that sense, I think what the ministerial meeting at Nuke was uh, trying to achieve was to prepare and indeed anticipate for growing involvement of observers with regards to the Arctic Council. Now, the question I'm interested in is how will this growing interest and indeed uh, growing demand, I suspect, on, uh, on the Arctic Council from these observers be handled in the future. Uh, and so that's the area I really want to concentrate on, and inevitably uh, issues like 
resources, for example, I think will, will inevitably rear their head. Can you please tell me what you think would be an ideal future for the Arctic? What does it look like and what role could your research play in this regard? I wrote a paper for uh, the journal Polar Record on the Arctic Council, I think about two years ago now, where one of the things that I tried to explore was the idea that there are multiple futures uh, facing the Arctic. So one of the things that I think my research tries to contribute is to get us to think a little bit harder about how we conceptualize the future in the first place and how the Arctic is enrolled in various future-related projects. So my own view is uh, to talk about the future in the singular is probably mistaken. Now, the Arctic Council, the Arctic states, the permanent participants, the observers, and indeed any other actor interested in the Arctic has, uh, in a sense, a profound interest in various futures for the Arctic, which we might think of as fearful futures, hopeful futures, futures that we want to avoid. So my own interest is trying to distinguish what these futures might be, but also how we go about preparing for them, anticipating them, preempting them, simply trying to avoid them. So I don't think there is an ideal future for the Arctic, but I think whenever we look at the question of resources, for example, what we see is in some senses a battle over rival futures, some of which may be quite optimistic, but some of, some of which, of course, may be utterly dystopian. When talking about different battles, what is your opinion on Prime Minister Harbour's last-minute decision to instruct the scientists to collect more data in the hope that they could extend Canada's submission to include the geographic North Pole? And why do you think that Canada, Russia and Denmark are so keen on including the North Pole into their sovereign territory? I think there was a really interesting you know, discussion that followed this announcement that uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper had indeed appeared to instruct the scientists to go and collect more data. I mean, one of the things that my work tries to do, amongst other things, is to explore the interface between geopolitics, science, and, if you will, knowledge-power relationships. And so, as many scholars of the Arctic, and indeed the Antarctic, recognize science and geopolitics have often gone hand in hand with one another. And I think it was an excellent illustration regarding uh, the Prime Minister's intervention. Why the interest? Well, I think um, as maps that continue to circulate in Canada and beyond reveal, there is a huge interest, as much symbolic as anything else, in imagining that the Canadian state extends all the way up to the geographic North Pole. And when that Russian flag was gently deposited on the central Arctic seabed in 2007, um, it certainly caused uh, a great deal of interest and perhaps even alarm amongst international observers. So what we have here is a kind of legal, geopolitical, scientific sets of uh, maneuverings that are ultimately about trying to, in a sense, link the fate of the geographic North Pole to a really interesting set of expressions of national identity politics, national prestige, national pride, but also, if I may say so, a kind of manly geopolitics as well. I do think 
male political leaders, when it comes to the Arctic, and I mean particularly white male political leaders, like to point their finger at the map, like to plant the flag, and like to say that everything they can see belongs to their country. What do you see as the value of events like Arctic Dialogue? Well, I think the, 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 mere, the mere notion that there is an Arctic Dialogue is a very interesting one. And to my mind, what I would wish to do is to unpack that particular, uh, if you like, uh, combination of words. So first of all, I'd want to think about what it is we mean when we talk about the Arctic. Again, when it comes to uh, words like future and Arctic, I think we need to think about the Arctic in multiple ways. So we have to get out of the habit of thinking as the Arctic as a kind of stable geographical space that we can draw straightforward lines around and say, this is the Arctic, this is not the Arctic. I think we need to have a more complicated understanding of what multiple Arctics might mean. Secondly, when we think about dialogue, um, we need to think about what, what exactly is a dialogue. How do we judge, for example, a good or bad dialogue? Are there more desirable bad, uh, dialogues? Or are there dialogues that we wish to avoid, that we don't want to talk about, if you will? So, to my mind, if an event like Arctic Dialogue has a value, it would problematize the idea that there is a singular Arctic and explore very closely what kind of dialogue we are actually having and whether, as Michel Foucault uh, taught us uh, over many years, if we think of a dialogue like a discourse, then we begin to think about power, knowledge, subject positions, uh, what is included and what is excluded. The theme of this year's Arctic Dialogue is resources. What comes to mind when you think of the Arctic's resources and the development of these resources? Well, the first thing I think of when I, when I see or hear the word resource is that resources are human creations. And I don't see resources as sometimes maps represent as these kind of fixed elements that uh, simply uh, exist within and on top of the Earth's surface. But I also think of resource, of course, in terms of communities. And one of the uh, values of thinking about resources in a kind of critical and open way is actually to think very carefully, what exactly is it we're talking about when we think of resources? And actually not, a, not to allow ourselves to always think of resources as things like oil, gas, zinc, uranium, forestry, fish. I think it's incredibly important that we think of human resources as well as non-human resources and the way in which the two depend upon one another. Um, the other thing I think is really important and becoming increasingly obvious in places like Canada and Greenland is that the resource futures of the Arctic are going to be ones that are going to be profoundly shaped by the involvement the participation, the engagement with not only indigenous Aboriginal northern communities, but also with extraterritorial, if you will, global communities. And I think we see these tensions crop up time and time again, particularly when we think about the role, for example, of environmental movements when they're called for the saving of the Arctic. How do you perceive Greenland's path to full sovereignty?
with the economic foundation being the development of its many natural resources? I think that's a really interesting and indeed complicated question. Certainly when I was uh, last in Greenland, uh, which was in June 2012, and that actually coincided with uh, the National Day celebrations, it was really interesting actually to talk with world-renowned experts on Greenland, such as Mark Nuttall, who happened to be at the university at the time, but also with people who live there. And one of the things that you know, you're sort of constantly aware of is that the relationship between Greenland and Denmark is a complicated one. The other thing is that Greenland's community of 56,000 people is a small one, and there are many demands that are made upon that community. And so, to my mind, one of the challenges that a kind of resource-led future in a sense might lead us, is to thinking about how, as you put it in your question, full sovereignty might actually be secured on the basis of, uh, shall we say, resource, resource uh, revenues or resource monies. I'm not sure any state enjoys full sovereignty, and I don't think they ever had. So the question then becomes, is what kind of sovereignty, if you will, would Greenland enjoy if it was to become independent or if it was was to become less reliant on the block grant from Denmark. And the thing that I suppose I would worry about is whether one form of dependency, which uh, in a sense resonates from Copenhagen, would be, if you will, transferred to other kinds of dependencies, which might include, for example, resource-based corporations, energy prices, market value for particular substances like oil, gas, rubies, diamonds, and whether, for example, actually this particular question leads us to think about whether natural resources are some kind of panacea, you know, some kind of utopia uh, that is going to be invoked. I fear it's going to be a lot more complicated than that. There's been a lot of discussion in the media lately regarding the development of Arctic resources. Do you think that the topic is overhyped? Or do the media portray the Arctic opportunities in a realistic manner? That's a really good question. And I think it does come down to issues of framing. Uh, so in terms of how do these particular spaces associated with the Arctic and how do resources get framed or presented to publics? I think a couple of things I would say. First of all, I think corporations, states and media organizations all participate in overhyping the resource potential of the Arctic. On the other hand, it is also the case that the media become a very easy target for governments in particular to blame for such overhyping. And I think that what happens as a consequence is that we, we kind of lose nuance. So we kind of think of the Arctic and the sort of various landscapes uh, that reside as uh, almost too singular. And actually the reality is there are lots of different resource landscapes in the Arctic and beyond, and it's not straightforward. But of course, uh, one of the things that media organizations often rely upon is simplification. You know, there's, a, there's always a limited scope for introducing complexity. So it's, it's ridiculous in a sense to think of the Arctic resources as if somehow 
well, I don't know, offshore oil and gas development in the Barents uh, Sea region is similar to uh, resource development in continental Canada. These are very, very different and, and uh, complicated relationships between peoples, states, resources, and corporations. So I'm not sure, for example, the media often portray these opportunities and dangers, I might add, in a realistic manner. Uh, but then at the same time, I think an awful lot of actors and stakeholders are guilty of, on the one hand, overhyping, but on the other hand, underplaying the very real, for example, environmental and logistical dangers and challenges that exist. Well, Klaus, thank you very much for sharing your interesting perspectives on the Arctic with us today. Thank you very much again. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. Follow along with this series on iTunes or via our websites arcticdialogue.com and thearcticinstitute.org. The music you've heard at the beginning and at the end comes from Heber Seferin and can be found at ccmixture.org.